Open up to Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. See, I had to say all of that so I could get rid of the murder in my heart. Um, So Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. The title of the sermon is Murderers in Heart, and I think you'll understand why this is titled that. Um, If you are physically able to stand for the public reading of Scripture, uh, please do. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. And Jesus, our Lord, he says this. He says, you have heard it said, or you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire. So if you are offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him to the court. Or your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of God. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. God, we just thank you so much for giving us this word. We thank you, Jesus, for you teaching us how to, how to read and how to interpret the law, how to apply it to our lives. And God, we pray, as our brother Carlos was mentioning, that, that you gave the law, one, to show us that we're, we're sinners, two, to restrain evil, and three, for the believer indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you've given it so that the Spirit could write it on our hearts and teach us how to walk in a way that's pleasing to you. And so we're going to get one example of that today from our Lord. So I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what's in your word, that you would remove me as much as possible, that you would encourage your people, that you would convict your people, that you would save those who are lost. And that in everything, God, we would just make much of your name and that you would get all the glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please have a seat. I remember back in 2013, I was in the field for my Army annual training at Fort McCoy, Wisconsin. And at that time, I was a brigade chaplain. And and part of my job was to support, lead, supervise, and manage the battalion chaplains that were part of my tactical uh, chain of command. There was this one chaplain. She was a a, a Korean woman. And she was resisting my leadership in a passive-aggressive way during the entire exercise. And the reason for it is she was holding a grudge against me for something that happened the year before. Um, She was from an organization outside of mine, and so they called me in to clean up one of her messes since I was, I guess, unbiased outside of their organization. And as I cleaned up that mess, it exposed some negligence on her part, and so she just never let that go. Well, near the end of the exercise, I was getting tired of this, so I said, look, we need to sit down, we need to talk, we need to figure out what this issue is. Now, for accountability's sake, I wasn't going to meet with her alone, and I had uh, uh, another chaplain that worked under me. He was a Korean man, one of my buddies, solid guy. I said, hey, I need you to sit in, one, for accountability, and two, I needed him to read the cultural cues that I know would go right over my head. And so when I sat down and talked with her, throughout the whole thing, she agreed with everything I said. She was very smiley, and me, I would have assumed everything was good, Okay. But my buddy, after she left, broke down all the nonverbal cues as a cultural insider, and he showed me that, no, she was duplicitous. She has no intention of following through, and he was right. The next few days showed that he was right. Now, the reason why I bring this up is it illustrates something that I think we all know. On the outside, someone can act really polite and really respectful, while at the same time, their heart is filled with hate, their heart is filled with rage. So the question for us is at what point is something sinful? Was it sinful just being a disposition of her heart? Or would it not be sinful until she crosses the line and says, hey, you're dumb or something like that and just like says what she thinks or whatever? At what point does it become a sin? The outward act or the inward disposition? Now, people who are self-righteous are always quick to go with the second option. It's only a sin once you've done it. But when it's in your heart, it's not. And of course, that's because on the outside, they try to look clean. They make it hard to find ill behavior, but they are wrong. Jesus is going to use the law to show us that righteousness has to do with much more than just our outward actions. It has everything to do with our inner heart, the inner 
person. So in our text this morning, Jesus will show us this with the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Now here's what he'll show us. Here's the main point for you note takers. He will demonstrate that hateful anger itself breaks the sixth commandment. Hateful anger itself breaks the sixth commandment. Now, how do I know that? It's because Jesus will give us a much fuller understanding of the sixth commandment with three steps in our text. And by the way, these same three steps are going to be like in the next six chunks of text we'll go through. What he does is he quotes the scripture, that's first. Then, second, he gives us the true intent of the scripture, that's second. And then third, he gives us a practical application of it. So he'll quote the word, he'll explain the word, he'll give us the application of the word. And when he's done with that, it will be clear that anger, sinful anger, breaks the sixth commandment. Now, in our text, just to kind of show us where we're at, Jesus is moving into his explanation of what it means for us to keep the law. If you remember from last week, Jesus declared in the clearest terms, he said, I have not come to abolish the law of Moses, but to fulfill it. And we spent a good amount of time looking at what that means. We saw that that Jesus shows us the full meaning of the Old Testament. It all points to him. Therefore, it's all filled up by him. Before he came, the law was kind of like you're in a room. It's a dark room and you got candlelight. You could see what's around, but it's dim. Once Jesus came, it's like throwing the windows open at midday. You can now see everything in all of its glory and all of its detail. Through Jesus' fulfillment of the law and the prophets, we are able to understand them and we're able to apply them to our lives in a way that the folks of the Old Testament could not. See, Jesus made it clear that we're still expected, though, to apply the law to our lives. He said that not one letter or one stroke will pass away until heaven and earth passes away. Because of that, he said anyone that breaks the least of them will be what? Least in the kingdom of God. He says anyone who teaches others to do the same, it'll be the same for them. But he says those who keep the law and those who teach others will be great in the kingdom. He then finished by telling us that unless our righteousness surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, for the typical Jewish person in his audience, that was a bold claim in a tall order because the Pharisees, they were seen as the most strict keepers of the law that you could find. But Jesus was not impressed with them. They were good at keeping the law on the surface, but the law God's word in general was always intended to pierce to the heart, to affect not only our hands, but our hearts. So Jesus is now going to show us how to live in a way that demonstrates the greater righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, living this way relates back to what he told us in verses 13 through 16, namely that we are to be salt and light for Jesus, right? We're supposed to show the world our good works so that they will glorify our Father in heaven. And then even that part, being salt and light, relates back to his eight amazing announcements in verses 3 through 8, the Beatitudes, where he tells us this is what the person is like that pleases God. So that's what it's like to please God. Those people will be salt and light. Those people will be doers of the law in a way that surpasses the scribes and Pharisees. So with all of that, Jesus is now ready to get very specific as to what this looks like. If we are supposed to keep his commands and teach others to do the same, if we're to do this in a way greater than the scribes and the Pharisees, we have to ask, what does it look like? And that is what the rest of the Sermon on the Mount focuses on. To kind of give you it up front, verses 21 all the way to 48 of this chapter, we'll have Jesus give us six examples where he will bring up specific commandments from the Old Testament. These are very meaningful examples, but these are not the only ones he could have chosen from. He's just giving us a sample, right? And what he tells us from these six is important, but with what he shows us, he provides us the framework that enables us to go and do the same with other commandments. He's teaching us how to read the law and how to apply it in a way that honors God. So you can take the pattern that you see in these six examples in this chapter and you could apply them to any commandment. To help us with this, the little devo that I wrote for this month's newsletter, I took a commandment that he doesn't use here. But following the same framework, thou shalt not steal, I pretty much did the same thing to show you that it can be done. 
right? The pattern he gives us, we could use for any of the Old Testament commandments. Now, what is the pattern? In all six examples, Jesus does what I said at the beginning. He quotes the commandment. He then tells us it's true intent. And then he gives us a practical example of what it looks like in a real life scenario. Honestly, what he's doing is just good preaching. Any faithful preacher should do what our Lord does. We should quote the scriptures. We should explain what it means and its true intent. And then we should be able to give you practical examples of how to apply it. We see Jesus doing that. And what Jesus is going to show us is that in order to have a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, we need to first focus here on the inner person, on the heart. So with that all said, let's take a closer look at the text. The first thing we're going to see is Jesus quote the Old Testament command. If he's going to show us how to keep it and how to teach others to do the same and to do so better than the Pharisees, well, the first step is to quote the scripture itself. And so this is the easy part. Look at verse 21, at least the first part of verse 21. Jesus says this. He says, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder. Now, he's quoting the sixth commandment. You could find it in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, or you could find it in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 17. And Jesus is saying, our ancestors heard this. It was said to our ancestors or to those of old or to the ancients. He is referring first back to when God spoke from Mount Sinai and spoke this commandment. That's Exodus 20, 13. He's also referring to 40 years later when Moses repeated it before they were going to go into the promised land. That's Deuteronomy 5, 17. Jesus is also referring to every time it has been repeated throughout Israel's history. Every Jew knows the sixth commandment. There's none that don't. And so that's why he says, you have heard it said, do not murder. Now in the rest of verse 21, he then adds to what they have heard. And so I'm going to read the whole verse, verse 21. He says, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. Now, That second half is not an exact or direct quote from the Old Testament. And so because of that, some people believe he is now quoting the traditions of the elders of Israel, like the the Pharisees' traditions. They think that what Jesus is going to say next only contradicts what the Jewish tradition says, and, and it has nothing to do with the Old Testament itself. But that's not what's going on here. First, Even if this statement was a tradition of the elders of Israel, it's still true. If you murder, you're going to face judgment. At the end of our passage, Jesus is going to talk about someone being imprisoned until they pay back the last penny. So obviously, Jesus believes that crimes should face judgment. So he's not contradicting anything here with what he says next. And second, even though this is not a direct quote from the Old Testament, it is a perfect summary of what the Old Testament says. There are numerous laws in the Torah that command Israel to execute judgment upon the person who murders. I went over a couple of them last week. You know, those are what we would call first degree or second degree. Or if you have an ox that likes to gore people and you don't restrain them, all that is murder. In all those cases, the person is subject to judgment. So by Jesus saying this, he is simply summarizing what all those casuistic laws, those case, case examples, those if-when laws, he's just summarizing what they all say. If you murder, you are subject to judgment. So here's what's going on here then. Jesus is teaching his disciples how to keep the law and how to teach others to do the same. And so he quotes the law. He's telling you, don't murder. The one who breaks this commandment is subject to judgment. This is the law. This is what God has said. This is what is written. So now the question is, if this is what is written, if this is what God has said, what does it mean? Is it as simple as refraining from killing people, or is there more to it? And that is what Jesus will answer next. He's quoted the commandment. Now he's going to teach us the intent, the true heart behind it. And we will see that in verse 22. So let's take a look. 22 is a pretty long verse. I'm going to read the whole thing, then I'll go back and break it into its smaller pieces. And I'll tell you now, most of my sermon is going to be on verse 22, okay? Because this is where he's given us the meaning of it. So let's look at it really quickly. He says, but I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. 
Whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire. Now, what we see there is we see three sins and we see three consequences. This is really good public speaking. It's good rhetoric. It's like a crescendo that builds up. We see that who's ever angry, whoever insults, whoever says you fool. And what happens? They'll be judged. They'll go to court. They'll go to hell. You know, it just keeps building. And and it makes it very memorable to the audience that's listening. Now, we're going to take a look at each of those as, as we go on. Okay, but first, let's notice how he starts off. He begins by saying, but I tell you. You've heard what God has said. But I tell you, that is huge. No one talks like this. Moses didn't talk like that. The prophets didn't talk like that. The faithful kings of Israel didn't talk like that. And in the first century, rabbis certainly did not talk like that. The word of God was the final authority. Truth was settled in four words. Thus says the Lord. And yet Jesus is saying, thus says I. Very interesting. Who is this man that speaks this way? Now, because he speaks this way, this has caused some interpreters to wrongly conclude that Jesus was contradicting the Old Testament. They they take this, but I tell you, it happens six times, they call them the six antitheses. They argue that Jesus quotes the law and then disagrees with the law by saying, I say to you. But that's not what Jesus is doing. In fact, the word for but here is not the Greek word that you would normally use to express a contradiction or disagreement. That word is Allah. This word is de, which has a wide sense of meaning. And in this context, what it means is it means not like but as a contradiction. It means but in addition to. It means but in addition to that. So in addition to this, in addition to that, I say this. So what it is, is Jesus isn't saying, you have heard it said, do not murder, but I say to you, that's wrong. That's not what he's saying. Otherwise, we'd all be murdering, you know, that'd be crazy. No, what he's saying, he's saying, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I'm telling you, it's even more than that. It's certainly not less, but it is definitely more. In other words, this phrase, but I say to you, does not contradict the command, but it transcends the command. It takes it to the next level. And I'll likely talk about this more in upcoming sermons. But this is precisely what the Messiah was supposed to do. The Jews understood that when Messiah comes, he's supposed to show Israel the truest sense of the law. He's supposed to shine a light on it and show them what it really means. If not that, some Jews thought he was meant to bring a new law altogether. But Jesus is making it clear with the majority, no, I've come to show you what it means. So him saying, but I say to you, This is what you should expect the Messiah to do. He quotes the law, and then he shows us how to keep it in a way that is far more faithful than the experts of that time, the scribes and the Pharisees. He shows the true intent. So let's look again to see the true intent. After he says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder, Jesus Jesus then says, but I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. In other words, if you think this commandment is only about murder, you miss the point. What is murder? It is the intentional destruction of, the hu- of human life. In its worst case, you are intentionally destroying a human life. In its best case, you're destroying a human life through negligence or thoughtlessness. So worst case, you want to destroy them. You're planning to destroy them. Best case, you didn't mean to, but you're careless, and so you still destroyed their life. Either way, your thoughts or your thoughtlessness so disregards another human being made in the image of God that it leads to death. And I want you to notice what I said there. Where does it start? Your thoughts. Your thoughts. Murder never just happens. It begins with anger. It begins with hate. It begins with jealousy and envy. Then the thoughts escalate. So that this would be an example. It starts with you hating someone. And then you think the thoughts escalate. You know what? My life would be so much better. If this person were just out of my way, maybe they'll move out of town. They don't move out of town. So then you're like, well, maybe an unfortunate accident will befall them. An unfortunate accident doesn't befall them. Maybe I'll kill them. Now, of course, we don't always get there. Most of us never get there, but that's how it escalates. Did King David wake up one morning saying, who will I kill today? Let me go to the alphabet. Up the letter U. Uriah. No, that's not how it worked. He slept with Uriah's wife. And he got her pregnant. And even after that, he had no intention of killing him. His intention was to cover up his sin. 
to cover up his reputation. So what did he first try to do? Send Uriah home. Let me have Uriah go to his wife. Then nobody will know this is my kid. They'll think it's Uriah's kid. But when Uriah was too noble for that, did David then go to murder? No, let me get him drunk. And maybe he'll, he'll let his guard down and go home and be with his wife. And then again, my reputation is intact. But when that didn't work, then David realized the only way he could cover up his sin was by killing Uriah. That's how it ended up at murder. It was an escalation of thought and intent. David wanted to protect his reputation when something threatened that. He did a lot of things to try to mitigate that threat. And finally, he just came to the conclusion that he needed to remove the threat altogether. And that was through murder. Let me give another example. Did Cain wake up one day and say, it'd be a great day if I kill my brother? No, that's not how it happened. Cain gave God a crummy offering. Abel gave God a great offering. God had regard for the one who had regard for him. God did not have regard for the one who did not have regard for him. That's what it was. And when Cain saw that, he should have repented. But instead, he was enraged. He was angry. How dare God not accept my crummy offering? Human autonomy, right? I should decide what I give to God. No, he's the one who made us. But Cain's thinking, how dare God elevate my worthless brother? And by the way, the name Uh, Abel in Hebrew means worthless. So how dare God do this? God even confronted Cain. Why is your countenance dropped? If you do what's right, I'll accept you, right? But Cain didn't listen. Instead, every time he sees Abel, it reminds him of his embarrassment. So in his anger, what did Cain do? He got rid of the person that reminded him of his own failure. He killed his brother. Jesus brings up anger because often anger is the root thought of murder. But listen, this isn't just limited to anger. Jealousy, envy, hatred, and greed are all inner man thoughts that lead to murder. When you are angry at someone to where you simply cannot stand them, your thoughts are disregarding another human being, a person made in the image of God. That is the root of murder. Now, I do suppose I need to add some clarification here. Jesus is not just talking about anger in general here, or all anger. He's talking about sinful anger. He's talking about anger without a legitimate cause and anger that that leads to evil thoughts. He's not talking about all anger because Jesus himself gets angry at sin. He isn't talking, and Jesus gets angry at people having hard hearts. He gets angry at the defilement of the temple. So there is a form of righteous anger. Paul got angry at false teachers when they would try to savage the flock of God. Paul will even tell us in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27, that it is possible to be angry and not sin. That's why we're not talking about all anger. He quotes the Old Testament, be angry and do not sin. And then he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. He's actually doing the same thing Jesus is doing, quoting the scripture, then explaining it, right? So showing us how to apply it. Be angry and do not sin. So not all anger is sin. Remember, the context here is the sixth commandment, which says do not murder. What kind of anger then is murder rooted in? That's what we're talking about. It's hateful anger. It's anger that seeks the downfall or damage of another human being. If you were simply angry at their sin, you would not want anything bad to happen to them. And you would not want to hurt them, okay, with your words or whatever. You would simply want them to repent so that good can happen to them. But when thoughts of retribution or just your anger keeps festing at them to where your thoughts aren't about their repentance, then if that's consuming you, you have violated the sixth commandment. R.C. Sproul makes a really good point about all this. He said that whatever the law forbids specifically, it also forbids all the broader things related to it. So, for example, if murder ends a neighbor's life, then this commandment also prohibits anything that, and everything that would damage a neighbor's life. Not just end it, but anything that hurts him, right? And the reverse is true as well. Whatever the law prohibits, it at the exact same time, it requires the righteous opposite, So if this commandment prohibits damaging a person's life or hurting a person, then at the same time, the sixth commandment requires the opposite. It requires that we work to promote the safety, welfare, and sanctity of the life of the person that we're not killing, right? So you stay away from the prohibition and you do the righteous opposite. 
And by the way, the New Testament will show us this in Ephesians 4 and in Colossians 3. It'll show us again and again. This is, this is how we keep God's commands. We are told, for example, to pray for those who persecute us. We're told to love our enemies. When they revile us, we are told to bless them, according to 1 Peter 3.9. When they hate us, we are to seek their well-being. All of that stems from the, from the sixth commandment. This is what it means to keep the command to not murder. It's to not just not do bad, but it's to do good for them. This is why in our songs this morning, Pastor Josh selected songs that focused on the righteous opposite of anger and hatred. Love, right? We're focusing on love, and we sang about God's love, which is the ground of our love. We love because he first loved us. Murder is wrong because it's the opposite of God's love, right? So, that's all pretty clear there. Now, there's one other thing I also want to say about Jesus' point here. He is not saying that it is as bad to be angry at someone as it is to murder. He's not saying, well, you might as well go through and kill them then because anger is just as bad. No, obviously murder is worse. It's an escalation of anger. Jesus never collapses the difference in degree of heinousness of sin. And so what I mean is his point is just because you have not gone all the way to murder does not mean you've kept the command. He's showing you that you have not kept the sixth commandment. Yeah, you might not have gone all the way to murder, but you have not kept the command. That's his point. Now, this is where Jesus is really pressing hard against the Pharisees and the scribes. As long as they did not have actual blood on their hands, they thought they were keeping this law and they would teach others to do the same. But in so doing, they were breaking the command and they were teaching others to do the same. If they say they have kept the command, but they hate others and they're jealous of rabbis with bigger platforms or they look down on the everyday Yosef in society, the everyday Hebrew Joes um, with derision. And by the way, the Gospel of John did say they looked down on the everyday Yosefs. Um, they, they just did. That is violating the sixth commandment. So it's not good enough just to focus on the outer man. The law was always meant to direct to the inner man, the heart. Now, some might push back and try to even push back against Jesus and say, but listen, when you read the commandments themselves, they don't address the heart. They just address the action. Do not murder. But I would reply that simply is not true. I would tell you, look at the Ten Commandments themselves. Consider them. The first commandment and the tenth commandment sandwich the other eight. Okay, the eight that are in between them, yes, they are about action. But what, so they'll tell you not to do or to do specific things. For example, don't make idols, don't use God's name in vain, keep the Sabbath holy, honor your, your father and your mother, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, right? Those are actions. But what sandwiches those eight actions? The first commandment says, do not have any other gods before me or beside me. That is an issue of the heart. That's an issue of affection. It's about what we worship. If we value our opinion over God's, we have made ourselves a God besides him. If we choose our own way rather than his way, we've made ourselves a God. If we choose greed, selfishness, sex, bitterness, or any other sin instead of obedience to him, we have placed a God above him and it's whatever that thing is. It has become an idol. It's become an idol. But I hope you notice something there. All those are issues of the heart, more than just actions. So the first commandment, the one that's at the first end, is all about the heart. What about the tenth commandment? What, what, what does that one say? Do not covet your neighbor's house, his wife, his servants, his oxen, or anything, it says, that belongs to your neighbor. That also is about the heart. Coveting something happens inside you. Okay, that is a heart issue. Cain coveted that the reminder of his shame be gone. David coveted that his reputation be intact. Those were heart issues that led to the action of murder. It is no accident then that all the commandments of action are sandwiched between the two commandments that are all about the heart. When Jesus says hateful anger renders you guilty of breaking the sixth commandment, he is only bringing out what the Ten Commandments had built in all along. When Jesus says lusting in your heart makes you guilty of adultery, which we'll see next time, he is only showing how the Tenth Commandment of not coveting your neighbor's wife makes you guilty of breaking the Seventh Commandment. That is what he is showing us. 
He's showing us how it all works together. The Pharisees missed what was obvious, and they had no excuse. They're supposed to be the experts of the law and the prophets, and they have no excuse because the prophets do the same thing Jesus is doing here. They touch on the the heart of the law. The prophets would actually rebuke Israel for keeping God's commands on the outside when their hearts were not right on the inside. People could say, we are following all the commands to the letter. We're keeping the external acts. And yet God was not impressed when their hearts were wicked. Again, even the prophets show us this. Let me give some examples. Isaiah 29, 13, the Lord said, these people approach me with their speeches to honor me with lip service, meaning they're saying the right things. He says, yet their hearts are far from me and human rules direct their worship of me. They were legalists. Okay, Hosea in Hosea chapter six, verse six says, for I desire faithful love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now, I want you to understand, he commanded burnt offerings. But he's saying, I don't want them if your heart's not right. I want faithful love. King David, after he repented of his murder, this is what he says in Isaiah 51, verses 16 and 17. He says to God, he says, you do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. That is what David's getting at there. And it's true. Of course, we're supposed to, especially back then, offer these offerings. But David's like, that's not what you're after. You're after my heart. And, I'm gonna, and I'll give you one more that will show that God truly does see external obedience to commands as meaningless when the heart is not right. And this one, I think, really cuts to the heart. Amos chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. He says, this is God speaking. He says, I hate I despise your feasts. He commanded the feasts. I hate, I despise your feasts. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. He commanded the assemblies. Even if you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will have no regard for your fellowship offerings of fat and cattle. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. You can't miss what God is saying there. If I go my whole life and never murder anyone, but throughout my whole life I hate people, and I gossip about people, and I'm jealous of people, and I hold grudges against people, and I wish wish misfortune upon people, then God is saying, keep your songs in your mouth. Keep your prayers to yourself. Keep your tithes. I want none of your hypocritical worship. I want none of your gigantic lie that you are a righteous person that obeys me because you're not. The very idea that people might think you're one of my own and represent my own character, that idea makes me sick. That's a paraphrase of what he's saying in Amos. So the prophets clearly taught that outward obedience is not enough. And then again, the very way the Ten Commandments are framed shows the same. Remember, Jesus did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. And he is showing us clearly what it means. He is spelling out for us what the Old Testament had already hinted at. Any hatred in your heart for someone makes you guilty of violating the Sixth Commandment. And you know what's interesting? Jesus' disciples, they understood this. They got it. John the Apostle was sitting at his feet hearing all this. And later in his life, when he's an old man, he's going to write 1 John. And he's going to take what Jesus teaches on murder here and teach us even more using the same framework or pattern of thought. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. So what he says. John says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. Sounds familiar, right? He's a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we have come to know love. He, being Jesus, laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need, but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and truth. Now, did you catch all that? 
First, he tells us that we know we are saved because we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Then he contrasts that with hate. If you hate your brother, you're a murderer in your heart. That's what he's telling you. Why? It's because he's taking what Jesus taught. If wicked anger violates the sixth commandment, how much more so does actual overt hatred? That definitely violates the sixth commandment. And nobody who unrepentantly hates has eternal life. That's what he's saying. And and notice, he doesn't just speak of the sixth commandment in terms of how you violate it. He also tells you how to keep it. He doesn't only talk about hatred being murder. He talks about keeping the commandment with love, the righteous opposite. He tells us, love your brothers. He then tells you how. Look at Jesus. What did Jesus do? He laid down his life for us. Therefore, you do the same thing for each other. And then he makes it even more practical. Okay, John, make it even more specific. He's like, okay, I will. If you have a brother that is in physical need and you have the means to help them and you don't, the love of God does not reside in you. You are showing hate and you're a murderer in heart. Think about that for a second. When we greedily hold on to extra stuff, when we have brothers and sisters that might be in need. Pretty much, even if our words say, I love you, if our actions and deeds refuse to help somebody with real need, we're actually violating the sixth commandment. Again, this is all about how hatred in your heart makes you a murderer. And John's saying how not to be that way. It's to be love. It's to be self-sacrificial for others. It's to give to those in need. He is taking the framework that Jesus gave us of how to read the sixth commandment, and he's applying it even further. Again, I find this so incredibly instructive. By Jesus showing us how to read the law, this opens up an endless vault for us of ways that we could apply the commands rightly. It's unending. It's a bottomless pit of goodness coming from God's word. This is why Psalm 1 verse 2 tells us to meditate, to think deeply and intently on the law day and night. We will thrive that way because we are then accessing this endless vault of goodness that God has for us. See, John took a principle that said hate does the same thing as, as anger, right? And, and he tells us that, that um, well, yeah, Jesus said anger makes you subject to judgment. John takes that principle and says hate does the same thing and then shows us withholding a helping hand is all part of that. Furthermore, if you lack love for each other, what they are saying is you violate the command. What the apostle wrote in 1 John proves beyond any doubt that Jesus' way of teaching here definitely helps us live with a greater righteousness than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. They couldn't even dream of figuring out this kind of stuff, not with their external focus. Now, getting back to our text, Jesus quoted the law saying the murderer will be subject to judgment. But then he also says the person of hateful anger will be subject to judgment. Why? Why is he saying it the same way? Because they violated the commandment. Now, Jesus is going to give us two more examples. And these examples escalate. Okay, And in each example, the punishment escalates as well. So look at the next part of verse 22. Jesus says, whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. In Greek, it literally says, whoever says to his brother, Raka, will be subject to the court. Now, Raka is an Aramaic term that literally means you blockhead or you empty head, you moron. So if you're angry at someone and you want to hurt them with your words now, you might say, you dim-witted simpleton, you know, that is calling them Raka. One of my direct relatives, I won't say who, when I was growing up would say that my head, um, my head is, what did he say? I'm dumber than a box of rocks. That's what it was. That's the same thing as raka. Okay, this captures the idea of it. Okay, it's calling somebody a blockhead. It really is. And Jesus is saying this is a no-go. This is totally an escalation because internal anger might just stay as anger, which is still bad, but This is when it goes to the next stage. How can I hurt the person? How can I see the pain inflicted? I know I will insult the person. And Jesus says, you will be subject to the court, which in the Greek is the word the Sanhedrin, which was the Supreme Court of Israel. Now, he is not likely talking about the literal Sanhedrin. They don't try people for for insulting each other. Jews of this time believed that God's heavenly judgment was a heavenly Sanhedrin. And so it's likely that Jesus is saying, you will be judged by God for this. 
And again, that makes sense. How could a human court judge the motive of the heart? It can't, but God can. Jesus then is going to show another escalation at the end of verse 22. He says, whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire. Now, there's two possible ways to take this. The text uses the Greek word moros, which you can tell where we get what we get from that, moron, okay, or fool. And, uh, and if that's what it meant, then this is just the equivalent of what he just said. He's given us both the Aramaic and Greek terms. Like, if you're calling people blockheads in any language, you're going to get it, right? He could mean that. But it is also possible that this is an escalation because the Hebrew word for fool is mora. Sounds very similar to this Greek word. And the word fool in the Old Testament isn't a blockhead. It's an apostate. And I'll show you this with uh, Psalm 14.1. says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do vile deeds. There is no one who does good. Pretty much, if this is what Jesus has in mind, then calling someone a fool is wishing that they go to hell. You hate them so much that you're calling them the worst thing you could call someone in ancient Israel, an apostate, a sellout, someone who doesn't even know God, someone who lives like a Gentile, someone that deserves to go to hell. And I do think this is what Jesus is getting at here. Why? Well, there's a clear escalation in each part of this. Anger equals judgment. Raka equals the court. And you fool equals hell. And, and so if the punishment is described in escalated terms, then it makes sense that the insults are escalated as well. Anger gives way to raka, and raka gives way to go to hell, man. That, that's where it leads to. And the result is all the same. The judgment, the counsel, and hell are the same penalty. Just each is described in an escalated way to reflect the escalated insult. And another reason this would make sense is if you're wishing hell on the person that you hate, Jesus is pretty much saying, you're the one who's in danger of hell. You're the one that's got to be worrying about this. And it's because you are flagrantly breaking the sixth commandment. And this is even worse when on the outside we act like we're holy people, but then in our hearts we break the commandment. James, the half-brother of the Lord, puts it this way. In James chapter 3, verse 9, he says, With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in God's likeness. That is hypocrisy to the core. It just is. And there's one more thing I should probably say about this, okay? Because some of you might be thinking, but hold on. Jesus calls the Pharisees fools and broods of vipers. And when Pastor John's preaching tonight, I don't want to make it hard for him. Paul's going to say, you foolish Galatians, um, in the text that he's hitting tonight. So I mean, that would be totally messed up if I said nothing, because everybody's going to walk up to John. You're wrong. So look, here's the thing. When Jesus calls the Pharisees fools, he is not breaking this command. It is not out of hatred that he is saying this. It is out of anger over their sin, but ultimately he desires that they repent, and it's not an insult, it's an accurate description of what they are doing. That is what makes it different. The same is true when Paul is calling out false teachers for destroying the flock of God. So please don't get entirely caught up in the words themselves. What is the point? The point is the sixth commandment. Jesus is using these words to tell us as it relates to the sixth commandment, when you have anger, hatred, and insults as they relate to murder of the heart, that is when it's wrong. When the words are meant meant to inflict damage and hurt the person or make them feel low, then it is a violation of the sixth commandment. Jesus and Paul, that's not what they did. Well, Paul did once when he told the high priest that God's going to smack him. And then Paul repented right away. Okay, but Jesus never messed up. So anyhow, in all of this, in all of this, Jesus has given us the true intent of the command. He's also taught us how to read and think about the law. You could take any given commandment, you could read it out loud and see what it's forbidding on the surface, and then you go down to the heart of that action. What are the various dispositions of the heart that lead to that action? Even having those thoughts and feelings actually breaks the commandment. And then think about how those thoughts and feelings escalate. They become a ladder of escalation where ascending actions will at their worst point lead to the very thing mentioned in the command. So even if you don't go all the way up on the ladder, even if you're on the first step of the ladder, you have still broken the commandment. And after you've then thought through all that and you've figured out the steps of the ladder and the thoughts that are beneath the sin, then think of the righteous opposite thoughts. 
and go and do them and cultivate them. That is how you keep the sixth commandment to not murder. That is what Jesus is teaching us here. When you think about the law of God this way and you live accordingly, your inward thinking and your outward living will exceedingly surpass the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. So the most important part of Jesus' exposition was that part, verse 22, him showing us what the commandment really means, what its intent is. But as I said earlier, all good Bible teaching will also have application. So for the rest of the text, that's what Jesus does. He helps us apply this by giving two examples. With these examples, he really is going to cover all of our bases because the first example deals with beef with a fellow believer. The second example deals with beef with an enemy, an adversary. And in both cases, Jesus is going to tell us to reach the same outcome, reconciliation. And by the way, that should tell you something right there. He's not talking about anger anymore. But these are his two examples that relate to it. At first glance, his examples are puzzling. He just told us how our anger and insults at other people violates the command that we should not murder. But then in his examples, he doesn't deal with our anger, but the other person's. He tells us what our response should be towards anger. We should drop what we are doing and try to reconcile with them. Seeking peace or shalom, as well as reconciliation. That's how we keep the sixth commandment. And and, and so that poses the question for us. Why does Jesus shift from our anger to someone else's? Well, two reasons. One I've already mentioned. Part of keeping the command is doing the righteous opposite. So rather than inflicting harm, you want to see good. What is one way to do that? To seek reconciliation. That is one reason he stops talking about anger and he starts talking about the righteous opposite. Reconciliation. But there's a second reason he switches up here too. It's crucial. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 7, Jesus will tell us that when we approach someone to correct them, we are to consider our own sins worse. Oh, how often we forget that. We are to mentally picture their sin as a tiny speck in their eye. And how are we supposed to picture our own? A giant log or a giant plank. Usually we do the opposite. Well, they got this big old log and I just got this little plank. No, no, it's the opposite. You are to mentally see yours as worse than theirs. We are commanded to first remove our log before we try to help them with our speck, with their speck. And if we don't do that and you still go and correct them, you're wrong. He says, first, get rid of the log in your own eye. Now, when you consider your anger at someone else, if you actually do this and you start first with yourself and all the possible ways you've wronged the person, and then you take it beyond that and just all the ways you sin in general, it is hard to remain angry and indignant. Your hypocrisy starts to bug you. Like, how could I be mad when this is what I've done and this is how I am? And then your anger starts to simmer down. You start to get humble real fast. And in most cases, you let the anger go. You start thinking, who am I to even be making a big deal of this? God, I'm going to let this go. You've forgiven me of so much more. Another benefit of this is you also start to realize that you were not completely innocent. There, there might, they might have a good reason to be angry at you too. So if you focus on your own log, not only have you repented of your own sinful anger and resentment, But now, ahead of time, you know what you've already done wrong before they even come and tell you. It's at the front of your mind. And then from there, you can go and make it right. Imagine their surprise when you walk up to them and you don't call them raka or fool, but instead you say, hey, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what I did. I wasn't thinking about how messed up it was, or maybe I was. But either way, I'm absolutely sorry for the hurt that I have caused. Will you you forgive me? Could you imagine how they would receive that in most cases? If you can do that, you are keeping the sixth commandment. That's Jesus' point. You have mortified your own anger and you have sought peace against their anger. So with that in mind, look at verses 23 and 24. When it comes to the first example, this is the one with your fellow believer. Jesus says this. He says, so if you are offering your gift on the altar... And there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled with your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Now, 
One thing I find interesting is in verse 22, Jesus actually, when he's telling us the meaning of the commandment, he did so in an apodictic way. There's that thousand dollar word. Apodictic just means timeless, universal truth. Like this is the truth of the law. Anger makes you subject to judgment. Well, once he proclaims the universal truth, now he's giving us casuistic examples, meaning case examples in real life if and when scenarios. So what he says is he says, if you're in the middle of worship and you realize X, Y, and Z, then go do A, B, and C. That's how you'll make it right. That's exactly how the law of Moses worked. If you've read the the, the Torah closely, Jesus is showing us how to do the same thing, only with our better understanding of the law. Now, what Jesus is doing here in this case example is he's putting the onus on you to go make it right. The moment you have reflected and realized that they have cause to be mad, and again, you will figure that out when you remove your own log, the moment you realize it, you are obligated to go to them as soon as you can and make it right. The priority of this is so high that Jesus says God does not even want your worship until you do this. It goes back to what the prophet said. God doesn't want you obeying the letter of the law when your heart is wrong. This means God doesn't want you singing in church and clapping your hands on Sunday morning if you're holding a grudge or if you know someone else has a grudge against you. You cannot bypass the need to reconcile. You can't tell yourself, well, just because I worship God this morning, I'm good. I don't have to reconcile with them. No, we are not given that option. If you really worship God, you'll show it by keeping his commandments. And so keep the sixth commandment by pursuing reconciliation. Now, I picture some people trying to use a loophole, because that's what we try to do, saying, well, I'm angry. So I guess if God doesn't want my worship till I resolve this, I can't go to church for two months, because that is how long it takes for me to get over my anger. Nope. You are commanded to worship the Lord the way he prescribed. And how did he prescribe? That we gather every Lord's Day together. You have no right to violate that command. So what that means is if there is beef between you and someone else, you have until Sunday to make it right. You don't have two months because then you're breaking a whole bunch of other commands. No, you have till Sunday to make it right, but I'm about to make it harder because in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, which we read, Paul said, don't let the sun go down on your anger. You have till tonight to make it right. You do not have until Sunday. You got to make it right, right away. And my point is, if you fail, my point is you fail to keep the sixth commandment if you do not pursue immediate reconciliation. And I'm going to add even one more point to this, just so that we understand it. There's going to be a lot of times where once you've removed the log from your own eye, that you will be willing to let the infraction go. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8 says that love covers a multitude of sins. So that actually means if you've wronged me, but I've thought about it and I've pulled the log out of my own eye and I'm thinking, you know what, this really doesn't bother me. I don't have to come to you and burden you with this because I'm not thinking about it anymore. In my love, I've forgiven it. But if I say I've love covers the multitude of sin, but I'm thinking about it every day and I'm still angry at you, then I'm a liar. And I have to go to you on this. So you have to figure out whether or not is this something I can let go or is this something that I can't. The point is you are not allowed to just stew in your anger. That violates the sixth commandment. And even if you're letting it go, if at the same, and you're like, yeah, I don't need to go to them. But if you realize, no, they still have something against me, then Jesus is saying you still have to go to them. Go and make the peace. We are to do this every day that it is necessary. My, my Jewish kinfolk, and this is coming up very, very soon, they do this practice. They go and find everybody that they've wronged, and they try to make it right. But they only do it 10 days a year. They do it between Rosh Hashanah, which is coming up September 16th, and Yom Kippur for those 10 days. They'll go and do this. And that is the kind of nonsense that comes from the thinking of the Pharisees and the scribes. The second they discover, oh, there is a deeper heart to it, they still find a way to limit it to 10 days. Jesus shows us the better way all the time. Any day you have this issue, any day you have this anger, any day you know somebody's got something against you, it's always our responsibility to go and make it right, not just 10 days out of the year. That way I could be an absolute jerk, you know, until the last 10 days before Yom Kippur and then all of a sudden I start behaving. No, that's the kind of nonsense we're supposed to avoid. 
So let's make sure we obey the commandment properly. Anyhow, that covers the first example, which is beef with a brother. Next, he tells you how to deal with an enemy, not a brother. This person intends to ruin your life with the lawsuit. And so here's how we keep the sixth commandment in this case. Look at verses 25 and 26. Jesus says, reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you are on the way with him to court. Or your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. This is pretty straightforward, right? This debt imprisonment was a very common thing in Roman society. Although the Jews didn't do it, the Romans were in charge, and so they saw it happen all the time. So Jesus could use this as a good illustration for them. And so what he's saying is, imagine you've sinned against an enemy, and they have cause to where they could sue you. They could hurt you with this. Well, once you've taken the log out of your own eye and you realize your fault, who cares if it's your enemy? Go and try to make things right with the person immediately. Even if it's on the way when you're walking to court, confess your sin, ask for their their forgiveness, and try to come to some agreement with them and work out your differences while there's still time. That is how you pursue peace, even with enemies. That's how you make sure you don't violate the sixth commandment, even to those who mean you harm. I will never understand Christians that try to get out of paying what they owe, whether it be debt, damages, or child support. You know, they'll make every excuse in the world. Well, that woman's just going to take my money and give it to some jiggle or whatever. You know, that's just, that's stupid. If you owe the money, if you owe it, give it. Jesus is telling you, make it right. Not just with your friends, not just with those who are nice to you, but with who? Your adversary. Your adversary. Make it right. That's the point. That is how we keep the sixth commandment. With, with that case. So Jesus gave us these two practical examples so that we could follow them. But listen, he gave these examples as a model that we could use. We could come up with probably a thousand other scenarios just like this. We're not just limited to these two. He's opening the vault for us, like I said earlier. If you read and apply the law the way that he's teaching us to here, you will be a wise person that pleases God. You will flourish in this world as you await the perfect world to come. You will be wiser than your teachers, as Psalm 119 says. You'll be more prudent than your elders. You will be one that loves God and walks according to his commandments. His word, his law will be like a light or a lamp to your feet. Like Psalm 119 says, it will become that for you. And again, you will be wise. And you'll do this all for his glory and your good. So may we all live as these kind of people. And for any unbeliever, I want you to notice something. God holds us accountable for the sinful thoughts that we have, not just the sinful actions that we do. God being an infinite, all-knowing, and all-powerful God, he knows our darkest thoughts, and he knows our hidden actions that we think nobody else knows. He is a righteous and holy judge, and he will not look the other way. The reason why I'm telling you this is because people in our culture often assume they are good people. Maybe you're assuming you're a good person. You might assume that if anyone's good enough to get into heaven, it might as well be you because after all, you're not Hitler, you're not Stalin, you're not Mao, you're not Jeffrey Dahmer, and you could just keep naming the worst people ever and then convince yourself that you're all right. And look, I, I, I'm sympathetic to that, that idea. It's wrong. But when I was a 17-year-old, I said the same thing. I was sitting in a preacher's office and I told him, I'm not that bad of a person. I don't murder I don't, you know, I said the exact same thing. You know what he told me? He said, it only takes one sin to go to hell. And I'm like, what? Only one? God's holy. It only takes one. And then he said, do you think you've sinned at least once per day? I'm like, yeah. I know I've sinned a lot more than once per day, but he's like, let's just say it's one. You're 17 years old. That's over 6,000 sins you've committed. And it only takes one to go to hell. And then I'm thinking, wait, I've sinned a lot more than once per day. So it's a lot more than 6,000 at that point. And then if we're going to add what Jesus says here, when I said, well, I haven't killed nobody, well, at the same time, I've been angry. I've been resentful. I've been jealous. I've said things that have hurt people. I shot people with BB guns, all sorts of stuff. I was definitely a murderer in my heart. So then the number of my sins keeps multiplying and multiplying. And when I realized that, as that 17-year-old, I then asked what we should ask, what this draws us to ask. What should I do? What can I do? Is Is there any way to be saved? And there is one way, and only one way, 
And that way is Jesus Christ. Because the one who is teaching us this stuff, the Lord, is also the second person of the Trinity. He's God who 2,000 years ago became flesh. And he came and did what we failed to do. Not only did he never sin with his hands, but his thoughts were always right. He always did every aspect of this right. And alone is the one person who earned eternal life, who fulfilled what God requires of all of us. And Jesus did this so that everyone who believes in him will get the credit of his perfect score. We will, because God demands perfect righteousness for our salvation. We can't do it. Jesus did. If you believe, you get the credit of his righteousness. But what about your sin? Well, why do you think he was nailed to the cross? Jesus, who was innocent, didn't deserve to die. Yet, he takes the sins of everyone who believes in him, puts it in his account, and he was nailed to that cross where he drank the full cup of the Father's wrath for us. So everyone who repents, which means to turn away from their sins, and bows to Jesus and gives their life to him in faith, every single one of them will have all their sins forgiven because he paid it on the cross, and they will get the credit of his perfect righteousness. But this is only given to those who believe. So if you are still insisting on your own goodness, you're not good. You will face his wrath. But he is telling you now there is a way, a way of escape, a way of salvation. And if you think your sins are so bad, he can't forgive you. No, he can. He's God. You just have to turn from your sins and come to him in faith and you will be saved. Now we're going to pray. And then when we're done praying, we're going to get ready for the Lord's Supper. And so while we're praying, you could pray to God. You could say, I'm turning away from my sins. And I believe on you, Lord. You know, Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So you can do that. You don't have to raise your hand and walk up here and sit on this bench in front of everybody. This is something you could do between you and God. And then afterwards, if you do, come and talk to me or any of the leaders here because we would gladly like to walk you through what would come next. But that being said, we're going to pray and then uh, we'll sing one more song and take the Lord's Supper together. God...